0: Hello listeners, and welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I welcome Lucas Marino and Neil Summers to the show. Lucas has been on before, but Neil is a brand new guest that we haven't had on before, so really excited to have Neil on, and of course, Lucas is always great to talk to. This week, we are continuing on with our Back to the Basics mini-series within the podcast, and we're looking at some of these fundamentals that... Aren't done well. So today we focus on training. And training is something that we all want. It's something we know we need. Every level of the organization acknowledges the need for training. Yet it's still something that gets cut first. This podcast, we dive into talking about what makes a training course a good training course, how to keep people engaged. And throughout COVID, the, we've had this journey. Uh, more online training so we do talk a little bit about that and, and that's part of the whole engagement thing and then finally we talk about how to keep your training from getting cut so really excited about this episode i had a lot of fun recording it and i hope you enjoy listening before we get to that a quick message from our sponsor Precise. <music> Hello listeners, this is Steve Doby, one of your hosts of the Maintenance Disrupted Podcast. As you know, we have a sponsor, Nano Precise. And this week, in the cement sector, on some silo drives, Machine Doctor detected an impeller imbalance in dust collector fans in advance with the help of a Nano AI alarm, which is automatically set based on component behavior. This is a great save and a awesome example of some of the, the great things that they're doing over at NanoPrecise. You can check them out at nanoprecise.io. As always, thank you to our sponsor for supporting this podcast and if you want to support this podcast too, make sure you give NanoPrecise a call and let them know you heard about them on Maintenance Disrupted. Thanks everybody. Now here's your episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. I'm your host, Steve Doby, and today I have two special guests, Neil Summers from Electra Learning and Lucas Marino from East Partnership. So thanks for joining us, guys. Before we get started, um, I'm just going to get you both to introduce yourselves there briefly. So if Neil, you want to go first, tell us about yourself and a little bit about Electra.
1: Yeah, no, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on It's uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts and it's great to be part of it uh, this week. So uh, yeah, Neil Summers, as you mentioned from Electra Learning, I'm the one of the owners of the company. I've been with Electra for just over 10 years. Uh, you may detect I've got a slight accent. So uh, I'm originally from Scotland, moved across to Canada in 2013 to set up Electra here. Uh, Electra itself has been uh, 25 years old as of March this year, so we're coming up to quite a big milestone in the next few months. Uh, We've got offices uh, in Canada, in Ontario, Alberta, and in the UK, and we're soon to open up in the US, so we've got some uh, good expansion and growth going. When it comes to maintenance reliability, the biggest area that we focus on is software related training, in particular IBM Maximo. So we are the largest IBM Maximo training company in North America. And we're the only gold certified uh, learning and performance institute um, company uh, who deal with Maximo. And as far as uh, the areas of work in which we work in, we're lots of different sectors, oil and gas, mining, manufacturing, transportation, public sector. And um, once again, thanks again for having us on the podcast. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Neil. I'll throw it over to you now, Lucas.
2: Yeah, um, I'm the CEO of, of uh, Marino Consulting Services, which has several divisions in it, one of which is East Partnership. And East Partnership is uh, kind of like our flagship offer for courses in, in uh, the, the realms of, of maintenance, reliability, asset management, lifecycle management. Uh, basically, what we're doing is trying to provide education sources to people that maintain and manage complex critical assets. So uh, we're we're essentially a group of consultants that all got together and said, hey, let's let's you know share our knowledge with the industry and uh and, and do it in both online and hybrid applications. So I'm fortunate to have amazing partners um in, in training there, Suzanne Greeman. Um, I've got Jesus Sifante, you know, Bob Latino, Michelle Henley, um, yeah, Sonia Mathura. So we've got a great group of people delivering courses that um, provide a lot of value to to people that both establish and manage uh, programs that, that have complex systems. And um, it's been great. And, and on the flip side, I also help other people launch online training businesses um, through Merino Training. So training is a huge part of my life. It's, uh, it's what we love to do. And uh, it's all about making the people
0: and the industries around
2: us better. So
0: thanks for having me on. Yeah, that's great, Lucas. And definitely, uh, you know, one thing we're always trying to do, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're no different is, you know, continuously learning, right? So, uh, you know, both Electra and, and East partnership there uh, are, are great resources for what you might be looking for. Now, for our podcast, uh, we're, we've gone, we're doing a bit of a back to the basics series. And uh, this series is about looking at some of the fundamentals that are missing. We get so wrapped up in all these fancy sensors and different deep reliability or maintenance analysis, but we forget about what's really important. And one of the most important things is training, uh, both on like your CMMS software side, and the skills for the tradesmen and things like that. Um, so what do you guys see is something that's missing out there? Like what, what are organizations missing the mark on that they need to uh, up their game a little bit in terms of training?
2: All right, um, yeah, I appreciate that. So yeah, the biggest thing to me is that we have to change the way we look at, uh, look at training from a, from a leadership perspective in organizations. Oftentimes what I hear from people seeking training is that they have trouble getting support for them to get training. And I think that that's a significant problem, um, not only for the workforce, because they're lacking the development that they deserve to do the job the best that they can and and produce more return on the investment for uh, for that training for their employer, uh, but it's cutting the organization short. And so you hear a lot of organizations talk about investing in resources to improve their bottom lines, like investing in new equipment and new tools and new methods. But a significant part of that is investing in the people who rightfully are our most important resource and giving them the tools and the, and the knowledge and skills to perform the best they can. And when we, you know, we need to kind of start to think about training a little differently. When you talk about bringing it back to the basics to me, it's just bringing it back to a, a healthy mindset about training, not as like an extra cost or as some extra thing at the end of the year that we'll fund if we have the, the the ability to do it, but as an upfront cost to invest in your most important resource, your people. And so I think we just have to kind of take a foundational look at what training means to the organizations, and it's an absolute qualifier for good human resource management. So that's that's kind of my two cents on you know, how to kind of re- what we need to start thinking about a little differently.
1: Yeah, and I think so. Yeah, Lucas, it's similar thoughts around it as well. You know, obviously being in the business of, you know, full time education and training is what we do. We see some of our clients and some companies that we work with, they, you know, they really value organizational change management and training being part of it. But they, they sometimes don't always, you know, give it you know when it comes when I look at project plans you know I was formerly a project manager so I came from that experience I would always make sure that training was appropriately allocated budget and time and resource in there you know some people we see think of training as some tick box exercise saying okay three weeks four weeks before training of a new implementation say maximo uh, let's train the staff on it but you know it's it's not giving proper thought to, it. it's not looking at what, it's not doing a formal training it needs analysis of looking at, you know, what's gonna work for the organization, what has worked in the past, what's gonna work for the workforce. Even when it comes to things like the type of training, is it best to do virtual training, insight training, e-learning, all the different methods of, you know, what we would call a blended learning approach. You've got to look at what's gonna work for different people when it comes to delivering the training. And, you know, what I often see, and I'm sure, Lucas and Steve, you've probably seen this as well, is that when commodity prices are low, um, sometimes the traditional approach of an organisation will say, "Okay, we've got to save money, so we're just going to cut out uh, a training budget or we're not going to train people. But it's the biggest false economy that you can have. You know, by investing in training, at least maintaining your level of training budget, if not increasing it, you're investing in your people who, as you say, look, is the greatest resource of the company. and It's going to make sure that they actually perform to an optimum level if they're actually trained as opposed to the false economy of, I believe, cutting training budgets during downturns and commodity challenges.
2: Yeah, this stuff should be planned. Uh, and, you know, you're talking about going back to the basics, Steve. What's the most basic managerial functions that you have? You have to you have to plan your budget and your schedule for the year, right? Like that's like 101 for management. Uh, and and these things are built into that. It's not in addition to it. So in the in the Department of Defense and in these large acquisition efforts with the government, whenever we design a very large, complex, expensive asset. We look at something called supportability. How are we going to support this thing? We're going to spend a billion dollars on a submarine so that we can use it, not just keep it parked at a pier. And in order to use it, it has to be out doing the King's business, which means it has to be ready to operate. So we have to do maintenance and we have to do all these things, but the 12 elements of support, one of them, and it's not a, uh, it's not an option. It's a requirement is training because with these complex systems, if you really want the crew to be able to, to use them, you have to train them. And not only do you train them so they can kind of figure it out, it's so important that you train them to the point where they can do it without thinking about it. And when I left the service and came out into the civilian sector and realized how different the my- mentality was on readiness of your people and, uh, and readiness for operations It was kind of mind blowing to me um, that that the perspective on training wasn't wasn't considered uh, in this in the same sentence in some places, not all I I don't like to speak in absolutes, but in some places. And uh, Neil, I thought you brought up a great point earlier when we were talking, um, you know, about like the linkage between software and methods and software and capabilities. That's super important. And I think one of the things that we really need to work on is, as far as fundamentals and basics as well, uh, Steve, help me out here with an early question, right? Is when I think about investing in people learning something, it's not one-dimensional. It's not like you learned how to physically use a tool or you physically learned how to use you know, software. It's also about the methods and applications that you use those tools for. And I think that's part of it is it has to be like, you have to look at the whole package, just like you should be looking at the whole package when you buy the asset. And so, yeah, I'd be interested in, to learn a little bit about what you what you're observing in that area, Neil, as a, as a guy that focuses on software training.
1: Yeah, I think i got a couple of two things that would just roll it back a little bit. I think, first of all, you know, when it comes to training, you know, you've got to look at what the business need is. It's not just allocate budget for training without really giving proper considered thought to what that training is going to be. You've got to look at you know what is the outcomes of the training going to be just don't uh, create a training plan without you know having you've got obviously got to have learning outcomes and objectives there but you know what are the business needs and what are the business requirements out of the training going to be so i think first thing you know when it comes to planning and prepping for this kind of training is you know really clearly define what the business need is and also part of that and this is part of what we would do as part of our ocm you know overall ocm package that we would do when we're working with clients is you know, it's determine if training is actually the right solution. So you don't just throw training at people for no reason unless they need to be trained. I've seen organisations who just think training people on something is going to cure all problems. It's not going to cure all problems. You know, I think if employees know how to perform their job and they know how to use a product or tool, they don't necessarily need training. You know, what they might need is um, consider like, are the processes out of date? Do they need to be improved or enhanced? You know, is there a motivational factor with member of staff or the team? Is there organizational change issues with it? So I think when it comes to training, it should only really be adopted when someone doesn't know how to do something, they're implementing new software, new equipment, new machinery. So I think it's training has got to be focused and targeted for what training is needed for, not just, okay, training all around. And this is coming from a guy who owns a training company yeah. who advocates training, but it's going to be training for the right reasons and not just training for the sake of training.
2: Well, I think you find that the people like us that own training companies are probably the biggest advocates of making sure that we do an assessment before we give them a solution. I mean, like I intentionally put in my title that I'm a principal solution developer so that when people contacted me, they knew that they were asking for a solution and not just training. And that we, you know, when I tell them, hey, we should get on the phone and do a training needs assessment, uh, just to make sure that we're talking about the right thing and the right application, I could sense that there's a little bit of confusion there sometimes. They're like, really? We have to talk about that? Yes, we absolutely should, because the worst thing that could happen is that you go and buy something that's not the right fix, right solution, right uh, right training for the for the application, like you were saying you end up with disgruntled learners. You end up with disgruntled, um, clients, you end up with a a disgruntled trainer. It's
0: never, never a good shake. I agree completely. Yeah. I, you know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in what you both say because it's all really fantastic. One of the the big things that I took away from all of that is, is about the sustainability of training. So, um, for the, the last thing you mentioned there, you got to train with a purpose and, and, um, And then as well, that sustainment piece is kind of the other big thing I I want to take away and talk about a little bit more because, you know, we see it where, you know, training it's, it's one and done. You come in, they do RCM training or they do, do Maximo training or whatever it is. They do it when it's, it's first put in, but then there's no sustainment plan. You take this training and, you know, depending on how long it is and, and what's involved, you get a good but you don't have that time to actually use that training come up with those questions and and find those issues that you have with that and then go back to that trainer and say look okay i tried it and these are the problems i'm having now and so like what do you see that process that that full training process looks like so if i'm learning something new let's say i've never worked with maximo and um what does that training process look to get me from zero to an actual good user of of Maximo?
1: Yeah, I think it's yeah it's it's many different aspects too, but it goes back to you know what Lucas was saying there, and I think it's something that it's got to be planned for and prepped properly. You've got to the the whole training aspect is not just from that three weeks prior to go live. You've got to look at. Training needs analysis. You know, what do the trainers need? How do they learn? How does organization help them train? This blended learning approach that I touched on. You know, from that, the key next step, and again, we've got this five-step process when it comes to this, and, you know, the key next step is building a training strategy. So it's actually strategizing what the training is going to look like. So you've got sign-off from the client. You've got buy-in from the kind of representatives of the um, client who you're working with. So then you're designing the deliverables and the way in which uh, it's going to work best. You know, whether, you know, that's uh, remote training, which obviously has been very popular this last couple of years during COVID. We've got uh, in-person training that hopefully will kind of move back towards at some point in the near future. We've got e-learning. So it's looking at what people are going to do, how they're going to learn best. Once that training's delivered, you know, the implementation part and what a lot of our clients do focus on is they they will put some money towards the go-live training. Certainly when it comes to software training, they'll allocate that percentage of training uh, budget available pre-go-live. Once go-live happens, you know, there's maybe two weeks, three weeks of hyper-care, a little bit of support of the users then. But after that, you know, when it comes to planning for sustainment training, you know, what is their sustainment plan for training? Well, they may have some quick reference guides. They may have some... uh, some of the materials to call upon, but, you know, without having, you know, a coaching and supporting plan in place. So what we do and what we, you know, what we offer as a company, what we work with our clients is is that we're there for, you know, sustainment training, whether it's refresher training. So specific pieces of functionality through a lunch and learn or a more formal training course, or whether it's sit down one-on-one with someone and talk through a particular issue on the functionality or how the system works. And that's all tied into. And again, e-learning can be part of that as well. So once you've got a stable system in place, you've delivered the training to help as part of that learning package that's available for the end users post-training. You know, they've got some either short videos or e-learning modules that they can um, get access to, which helps with the training as well. So lots of different methods, but you know, I think the biggest failure that I see with our clients when they're implementing. Uh, a software system say like Maximal is they, they just don't allocate the time, resource and uh, necessity of personnel to deliver sustainment and post-go live training. Big push for go live after go live it's like Good luck there you go you know i'm not going to mention names but i talked to a company you know earlier on this week and you know they were working off training materials that was 14 years old that hadn't been updated in 14 years and this was related to software training so you know i don't even know what can i state that training materials would look like when it's 14 years old but it's uh, i think it's a huge point you raise steve and it's probably the biggest challenge that i have Working with clients to for, to really help them understand the need for sustainment and post school training.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I I agree completely with you, Neil. It's it's definitely, you know, each like you said before with the training needs uh, assessment uh, or analysis, you can determine the right training solution for the right application. Well, part of that is when you identify what the tra- right training solution is, you're you're identifying you know, part of that, what training solution is right, is how long should they be in that program and what type of program should they be in for that duration? And so, you know, we've seen before where if you're training someone on something that's familiar yet they don't have the full scope of it, you know, it's it's a little different than if you're introducing people to new things and then they have to go out and perform it, right? So like with the life cycle analysis is a good example. I do supportability analysis and life cycle management analysis. And for me to teach someone, hey, this is how you do a maintenance task analysis. That's great. But then they have to go do one. And then they should come back and we should talk about it. And that's not something that's going to happen tomorrow for homework. So I've actually created a a year-long program solely to address this very problem of they need time to practice this. And they also need interaction with their instructors during that time period. And it's not just a short thing where you can just go through it really quick and be done. Now, you could take the course and you could learn the fundamentals of an MTA and you could go, yep, I've got this and I know how to go do this. But the reality is, as a learner, you're going to want some feedback on whether you did it properly. And in those types of applications, you're going to need that that time and seat with the instructor over a period of time to make sure you're refining your process and improving the value that you're getting out of your training, which ultimately comes back to the ROI for the training to the organization, right? Like the organization's getting better value out of that training when there's that interaction in that type of application. Now, with that being said, I wrote an article for the Virginia technical Academy just last week, last month. And it was published this week. Um, and in that article, I make an argument on why you have to do hands-on practical training for certain trades, because not all training is created equal. And even though I own an online and, and on-demand training platform, I wrote an article arguing for why that stuff should not be online or on-demand, because they need the interaction with the instructor, with the tools, the sensory elements of that training is critical as a form, you know, as being a tradesman back in the day. I, I get that, um, and so when we think about like, how do you sustain the the capability of the person, right? We call that skills atrophy. How do you keep them from atrophying? They have to be able to take that same tactile or sensory uh, load that they had when they were learning, and get enough of that in in shots to sustain them until they've mastered it and they no longer need you, and so that's a it's a it's it's up to the trainer to kind of figure that out Um, and a good training company will help you with that so like Neil was saying you know when he does his 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 training needs uh, analysis or assessment with his clients they're going to talk about that stuff Um, and and that's that's really important I mean I've even had clients call me and say hey can you deliver this training on site and sometimes I have to tell them the answer is no uh, because we don't have the ability to do that, and then recommend a different training provider to them because they're going to need that level of interaction when they do it, in order to sustain their skill set beyond you know a one week course or something.
0: Yeah, well, let, let, that's a good point. Let, let's talk about that for a minute. Because, um, what does a well designed training program look like? What is it, what is the process to designing a training program? You, you know, I've I've been to a lot of organizations. Um, Within the mining industry, mostly, and I haven't seen one that has a strong training program. Um, so, so what does good look like, and how do we get there?
1: I think personally, from my point of view, I think there's you know a five-step approach I would say when it comes to looking at this. And it, again, it touches back to the training needs analysis, which we mentioned earlier. But uh, first thing you need to do is, you know, what kind of, what type of training is going to work for the audience. You know, is it going to be, you know, in-person training? You know, I think Lucas mentioned it earlier, you know, sometimes, although virtual training has proven to be really successful during certainly the times of COVID, there is some things you just need physical interaction in, especially if it's, you know, handling equipment, dealing with equipment, that there is no replication for that by doing it virtually. Some things have to be done uh, in person. But, you know, is it going to be one in one Is it online? Is it classroom? I think the second part for me is, you know, is there an existing training program? You know, look to see what they've got already, what can be modified, what, you know, you don't always have to reinvent the wheel with training. You can look to see, you know, what what have you got, what's worked in the past, and then you've got to look at who's going to deliver that. Is it someone internal? Do you have the internal training team with a skill set and knowledge to be able to deliver that training, or do you get companies like uh, myself or Lucas to come along and help support from an outside consultancy point of view. Um, I think third thing you've got to look at is, you know, what's going to work for training when it comes to scope and length of the course. You know, is this a one-time training course that they have to go on? Uh, is that an ongoing thing that needs continual refreshment? You know, is that a two hour course, half day course, two day course, whatever. So I think looking at how long that training program is going to last and is important as well. You've got to keep people engaged. How can you keep people engaged for that length of training? Don't drag it out to four days if it's a two-day course or whatever. Yeah, now
2: you you nailed it, Neil. Um, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, and I and I keep saying that, but I mean it. You know, it's those are the those are fundamental building blocks to a, to a good curriculum. Uh, is is a, a method called a job task analysis. So let's say you know they call you out there to to provide some type of training on a, on a certain thing. All those elements that Neil discussed are are part of a job task analysis, but um, on the backside of the task analysis on the front side, it's like, what are the actual things, the learning outcomes? What do they have to produce, right? Like what do these people need to be able to do in order to do this job, to do this task? Those are the things you build your course around. It's a little different with trades than it is with some of your more academically driven uh, type training or even some of your more procedural training right so if you've ever gone to a to a to a class where you had to learn uh let's say you know like philosophy or psychology or something like that. it's not necessarily process driven it's 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 not uh, it's not necessarily tied to you performing a task there's a different curriculum development involved in that than there is if you have to go perform a famia or a FAMICA, right which is a, in in large part a, a process right it's a procedure so you could you could, uh, you could perform a job task analysis as a trainer and identify what the training outcomes need to be and how best to meet those outcomes with the student. And each of those steps is a unique application. Some of it could be on demand, some of it could be in person or, or, or a hybrid or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the approach we take in addition to what, uh, what Neil had already uh, mentioned.
1: Yeah, and I think, look, it's just on that as well. It just ties into exactly what you're saying. It's Is this supposed? To, is this going to be hands-on training? Do they physically need to get their hands on something? You know, some people don't like doing role-play type things in training, but there is advantages of it. You know, you've seen it. When yeah. we are doing software and demonstration type training, again, a typical approach, there's a three-step approach to it. First of all, the kind of, facilitator may just do a demo where everyone in the group in the training session is just watching, following along with it. The second one is the participants are actually uh, creating something in the software system at the same time as the facilitator. And then the third version is that they practice themselves and the facilitator helps them make sure that they complete it properly. So again, that's touching on you know, how do people learn best? And it's just looking at that different methods of it.
2: Yeah. And, and Stephen, you know, Jesus Safante and, I, I really like what Jesus has done with the, the reliability centered maintenance re-engineered course that he delivers uh, both live and through the East platform in a hybrid format, because the course is basically built around short delivered fundamental knowledge and then immediately into an exercise or application that takes the student, you know, to take and it's it's multifaceted. They have to use a textbook or they print out of of their text or their PDF file or whatever, and then they actually have to use the software that he's taking them through to perform the analysis. And and it gets them in the the mode of doing that with and without the assistance of an instructor, because there is a lot to be said about doing things without someone telling you how to do them, right? There's a a, a certain amount of knowledge and practice embedded when you're not necessarily being uh, guided step-by-step. So you have to have an appropriate mix of that in there as well. And uh, yeah, so ultimately, though, you know, what, what what we always ask ourselves to go back to the fundamentals is when this course is done, what is the definition of success, right? How do we define success? And if success is that the student can, can execute a certain task on their own with no guidance and just some reference materials, then great, we drive to that conclusion. If it's that that person can then turn around and train someone else, we drive to that conclusion because that includes more content than just teaching that person how to do it. So yeah, like in the end, you got to keep the the goal. It's like, what do I need this person to be able to do when they leave training?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so that outcome starting with the end in mind, right? The, uh, I think that's one of the habits of highly effective people. Um, And so, you know, one, one other thing that you talked about, you both talked about there was the engagement piece. And I know for myself, personally, doing a training course, um, obviously, the last couple of years, everything's been online. And my engagement with it is uh, somewhat limited because there's always these other things to go to. Um, There's emails coming in as you're doing your training course and and so many distractions, which, you know, when you're in person in a classroom, those distractions are are a lot less or not there. So how have you guys been kind of? trying to manage that better or or what can we do to to manage that better
1: I think from certainly from the software side you know we had to pivot really quickly you know we were we were working with a lot of our clients We're literally one week we're sending people all around you know North America delivering training the next week everyone was delivering remotely so we had to kind of we'd been used to doing remote delivery so it wasn't something that had came you know as a major shock for us but I think You've got to work with your clients and try and a few different methods. Even something simple, like if you're in a training session, you know, on Zoom or Teams or something, have their camera on to make sure that you can actually witness people there. So if, as soon as you put your camera off in any kind of meeting, you know, they're drifting off. The, the facilitator trainer themselves, if they're looking at a wall of uh, no faces, it's so hard for the facilitator to judge reaction. You know, when you're delivering training, which I'm sure we've all done, how you know that you're making impact, how you know that there's engagement is by just looking at people's reactions. You know, if someone's giving you some kind of visual reaction, smiling, making it an acknowledgement that they're understanding something, nodding their head. So uh, it's huge for the facilitator and trainer to have that. And it also it allows, the, uh, it allows others in the group to see that people are actively engaged in it. So certainly have cameras on where at all possible. You know, try and encourage, you know, the people going on to the training to dedicate time to it. try to give them their return on investment for what this course is going to give them. So, you know, if you only participate 50 percent of effort into the training course, you're only going to get 50 percent effectiveness out of it, probably less, actually, when it goes to your day to day work. So just try and encourage the benefits of them, given that whether it's one hours, two hours, giving it full attention. And that's another thing when it comes to virtual training, try and shorten the duration of the session. You know, in a classroom before, you could actually hold people's attention for that maybe six, seven hours a day when you're in the classroom. You can't do a virtual training session that's six, seven hours long. It doesn't work. It's really, you are literally looking at no more than two hours, I think, for a virtual session. And that's really pushing things to the boundary if you have to do it. So shorten the duration. Of the training, even if it is an eight-hour training program, don't do it all in one day. You can do four two hours, uh, just to make that happen. And also, I think when it comes to uh, virtual training, try and keep. You know, people might think, "Oh, well, we've got one trainer right here. We could put forty people onto this session." You know, add in additional bodies. You know, physically in a classroom, you maybe only got twelve. But we can think virtually we could put 30, 40 people on here. Again, I would actually say you're better having reduced number of people in a virtual training session than you would in a classroom. You know, try and keep it to really no more than six people in a virtual session, because it allows, again, the facilitator to interact with people more so, which is even more important than virtually than it is in a classroom environment. So, you know, I think those are some of the things that we've seen that we've tried help promote to our clients, you know, it's not, it's not about, you know, we'll do one training session, we'll train everyone, cameras off, you know, we've got to have that return on it. So keep class sizes smaller, the better, to be honest.
2: Yeah, um, I I love your your comment about timing because I even use, because we're primarily uh, online, uh, if it's an on-demand course, I, I draw a very fine line in the sand about how long a slide can last. With the instructors that that work with me because if if it's on demand it's not even hybrid where you're interacting with a live human over camera um it's even more distract you're more easily distracted right and you want to talk about like easy to zone out you go more than five, 10 minutes without the screen moving and nothing changing but a voice and even that not changing much you your brain starts to go somewhere else right so when you design the curriculum properly, they are constantly being stimulated throughout the course to help with that. Um, Gamification is one way to do it. Uh, You know, quick moving content is one way to do it. And then I like to put a a section of the course in the introduction for the on-demand courses. I like to build in a, this is how you use this course kind of module. And in that session, I like to talk to students about them getting the most out of their their investment by practicing some, some good housekeeping and some discipline, you know, because we're not there to, to tell them what they should and shouldn't be doing and, 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 and let them know whether they're engaged or not. Um, I couldn't agree more with you, Neil, about the camera on when you're teaching. So when I teach at the university, this drives the university kids nuts because they're at home and there's 28 of them and, and they get on with their professor and they think they're just going to turn all their cameras off and and listen and then half of them are just like, hey, can you just send us like the PDF of your slides? Yeah, I don't do any of that. Camera's on, no slides, no PDFs. It's a lecture and it really causes them to have to be present. Um, And the whole lecture is built around a couple of fundamentals, but we're in a conversation the whole time. It's not me lecturing at them or just passing information. It's me giving them nuggets and then engaging them in a conversation about it and then move into the next nugget, engaging in conversation about it. And so you can do some really great things with virtual learning. If you structure it that way, it just takes a really, uh, I I hate to use the word agile because I do some of that stuff, but you have to be a pretty adaptive instructor to make it work. And, uh, and not, and the students have to be invested in that as well. And then the last thing I would say is, um, you know, if you're the learner, you're not disrespecting anyone else's time in a virtual platform. If you're, doing other stuff than yours, right? So Neil Neil, and I have both mentioned that it's hard for the, the instructor or facilitator to get the most out of students if they're not disciplined. But in the end, the big crime is that you missed out, right? Like you're the one that walks away with less. It's The instructor walks away with the same amount of knowledge or more than they walked in with, but the learner is missing out on a great opportunity to walk out of there with value. So to me, it's just like, dude, honor yourself,
0: be present, get engaged and be disciplined. I love that. And I, I am very guilty for that as well. Like I am, I, I don't know, maybe I have ADHD or, or something like you get distracted so easily But when the camera's on and it doesn't matter if it's a meeting, a training course, whatever it is, if the camera's on and I know people can see me, I'm not distracted. I'm I I focused on that meeting, I focused on that conversation, I focused on that person, because it's now that personal interaction, instead of just a phone call, right? Um, It's, it's not as good as being there in person. I think we all understand that. But it's, it's better than, than, than not seeing them. And so, like, I have meetings where I'll be the only one with my camera on, because that's what I need to do to make sure I can focus. And, you know, slowly you start to see more and more people turn on their cameras. They think it's awkward for one person to have it on or not. Uh, um, So, no, I really love those those comments. And I think that's really important. Now, we are getting short on time, but there's one topic that I really want to touch on before before we end our, our episode. And that's the ROI of training. I get this question frequently and I don't have a good answer for it. Um, and so I'm hoping you guys as the learning professionals have a good answer for it. Like, how do you calculate a ROI on a training course? How do you show that value to those organizations, those managers that are sitting there trying to cut your training budget or whatever else it
1: might be? Lucas, that's it's one of the toughest questions to answer. And I was hoping you were gonna immediately jump in there, but I'll do it if you I, want to. I, do it. <laughs> As, as i I'm started speaking, I guess I can maybe kick off. But yeah, I think for me, it's... Steve, I think it's a great question because, uh, you know, a constant challenge that we have with some of our clients is really trying to help them define a tangible ROI for training, you know, especially when... Maybe commodity prices are tough or budgets in general for a project are tough. So, you know, there are some formulas out there. I'm not going to go through what the formulas are. You can do a quick Google and there's actual tangible formulas that you can use for it when it comes to net profit against the cost to see what the return is. So you can look to do some kind of monetary thing. I don't really buy into the you know that scientific thing. I don't think it gives you a real clear picture on is that ROI. If you want your accountants to have a number on it, if you want some decision makers, you can work on pulling together a number. In my opinion, it's fairly artificial when it comes to it. So I think first couple of things you need to do is you know what are what are your measures? What are your measures for determining or how successful the ROI is on it? So you know decide what the measures are going to be. Again, when you're starting to plan your training, don't just plan uh, learn objectives. Plan what the business impact's going to be of the training. So you know, plan for the outcomes and be able to deliver training that measures those measurable results. Have something quantifiable that you're measuring against. But there's some more traditional things. You know, when it comes to certainly software training, um, that we've got. I think there's three three key things are ways of measuring impact and performance. So again, you're looking at the return on investment in the individuals or the organization of that training. So you can look at learning effectiveness. So when it comes to learning effectiveness, you've got really, you know, people have attended training course, but did they learn anything? You know, they don't necessarily learn just because they attended training. So I think you've got some of the simple things that we've all done in training courses as facilitators, you know, you've got your course evaluation forms. You know, get that instant feedback on saying, you know, did this meet the requirements of what you thought you were going to get trained on? Did it meet your expectations? So you can have that, you know, clear learning effectiveness. And if you want to, as well, something that works well is doing a pre-training assessment. So do a pre-training assessment, do a post-training assessment. You know, has their skills and knowledge developed from when they went into this session? until they come out of it. So I think that's the learning effectiveness. I think also uh, job impact as well. So I think a lot of times when you're training people, you just train them and you don't follow up on it. What you need to do is you know, have that kind of, again, whether it's done formally through competency assessments, you know, as a company, we've been involved with clients doing competency assessments based on, you know, have they improved doing something know after a period of time doing the job so whether it's 30 days or 90 days later you know do a follow-up whether it's a questionnaire whether it's a discussion whether it's a competency assessment see if they've learned and applied the skills that they learned during the training and also you know business outcomes I guess it's one of the key ones as well as you know observational you know is that person so let's say it's someone saying maximal Are they creating better quality work orders than they were prior to the training? Are they giving the information that they need for the planner and the maintenance team to pick up and work with that? You know, if they're creating a job plan, is the job plan now giving more detail than it would do before? So I think it's, you know, there is tangible ways in which you can measure it without having, you know, scientific formulas based around it.
2: Yeah, yeah, Neil, you hit, you hit on most of, the, most of the same points that I, I recommend people use uh, to, to try and assess the value of training. One, the value of the outcomes. Quick question, what are my outcomes for the training? What do I want my people to be able to do? In other words, I'm paying someone to give me uh, some type of new capability or uh, efficiency. How much would that save me in money or how much would that produce that I'm not currently producing? try and quantify that, do it realistically. That's one way to capture. The second is the value of future efficiencies. Let's say we invest in training this year. And we don't really see an ROI this year, but we feel like when we do this, we don't have to hire two more people or one more person, or we don't have to bring in a new tool set in a year because we'll have gained efficiencies and effectiveness. We can use that to try and capture some of that value as well, that we would have had to spend more money. Uh, The third would be um, sunk costs. This is real big with software in my world. We, I saw this with CMMS as well when I was doing a little bit independent consulting. People would go and spend all this money on software and never train their people how to use it. And it was just sitting dormant or very badly used. And so they're like, I can't justify the cost of training. And I'm like, really? The cost of training sunk. You already spent $15,000 on software and they're not using it. So you have a cost right now that's not, providing you with a return on your investment. If you give your people some training and some some time in the seat with an instructor, you will now extract the value from your previous purchase, which is a sunk cost. That's very applicable with certain tool sets like software, at least from what I've seen. A little less uh, clean, a little more fuzzy, but very relevant right now with the great resignation and everything else going on. And this comes right back to the first point I made today, which is this is an investment in your people. There are people coming and going from organizations right now, based off of factors that either more weight on them or are new factors in their consideration about whether they wanna work somewhere. One of the things you can do to show your people that you take care of them and that you care about them is to nurture them and help them and grow them. And if you invest in training, you will retain that person oftentimes, or you will recruit that person oftentimes. And when you can do that, you can equate that to savings that you would have, uh, you know, you would have had costs associated with not having people with not having uh, or having the cost of having to hire and find new people. You can do that all day as a manager. You can start pushing those numbers around if you need to. And the last one would be an analysis of alternatives. Back to what Neil said earlier about, you know, training is not always the only answer to to your problem, right? You might have some other alternatives you can weigh the costs of those alternatives. And if training wins cost-wise, and you had to do this regardless, then you're saving some money by choosing a training solution over some other means like hiring a consultant or bringing in additional labor resources to do this work. You can use your own existing staff. You don't have to hire a consultant. You don't have to hire a new person to do this thing that may only be part-time anyways then you're getting a tremendous return on your investment for training because you're offsetting a, a cost of a body. That would have cost you a lot because if there's one thing that costs a lot of overhead, it's human beings, right? So there's all those different factors in addition to what Neil Neil had mentioned can be used. Um, but in the end, my go-to when I'm creating a course is very simple. What will this person be able to do with this when they're done again, right? And what does that what value does that bring that organization? And I did, a, I did a study with a level of repair analysis one time that would, if they implemented the recommendations of their analysis, would save this organization $1.6 million. $1.6 million. That was, if they knew how to do an analysis, they could have come up with that on their own. I did that as, as a consultant for them. And they paid me a lot more as a consultant to do that than they would have if they just trained one of their own engineers how to do a level of repair analysis and cut them loose. But because they had to hire me to come in and do that, it cost them a whole lot more money. And the outcome is still the same. They would have saved $1.6 million. They could reach that outcome through their own knowledge base if they have it. And so I, you know, I'm not going to charge them a million dollars for the training, but I don't feel bad charging a reasonable rate for that training, knowing that they have a very high probability of a strong return on their investment should they implement what they're learning. And so those are kind of ways you can look at the value of, of training in different, different ways as a manager.
1: I think really just quickly very one point I want to touch on and I think it was a great point, Lucas, around staff retention. You know, actually I think I posted on LinkedIn um, you know, yesterday, a couple of days ago, that I've seen so many people move in roles, which is great, and there's different reasons people move roles, but, yeah, training people, your team, is key. And again, that's not just from uh, looking at training people on systems, it's all different aspects of how they perform their role. So, a very quick plan for what we do at Electrics. I think it's been a, it's a really good model which uh, we've tried to help promote other people is we've got something called the Electra Academy. So whoever we hire for Electra, they have to go through this formalized and structured Electra Academy program before we ever put them onto any client face and work. So regardless of the experience or industries or knowledge that they come to Electra with, you know, there's Electra way and Electra method, which we feel is best practice for the industries and sectors that we work in. So I think if you look at, you know, don't just hire someone and expect them to hit the ground running. Give them the best possible chance to let them hit the ground running. Don't just throw them in there and hope it's going to work. You know, the resume looks good. They've got 10 years doing this. They must be good at what they're doing. You know, invest that time in anything. And it can be anything from really four, six, eight, twelve 12 weeks. Sometimes our academy programs with, it is for people based on where they're at, what knowledge, what we're trying to do, what the outcome's going to be. So, not just send your people on external training for external purposes, focus on doing internal training, you know, have a structured program for them, upskill them, onboard them properly. I see so many organizations that don't onboard people the way they need to. So, you know, the academy program is how we address this. And it's, I think it's a key reason why we've had really great staff retention over the years is that people feel as though they're given the best opportunity they possibly can to be successful in their role rather than just hoping, you know, they're going to be successful.
0: Absolutely, I, I love that, and that's uh, that's another fundamental that I have a I have on the list of things to talk about over this this series is that onboarding and how do we properly onboard people for success? You get thrown to the wolves far too often, and and you know a, a formal onboarding process and the internal training and external training to get you up to speed with where you're at in that organization is so important and you're right Neil I haven't seen that done particularly well I've seen pockets of people doing it well certain supervisors that understand the value but on an organizational level it's not not out there much
1: yeah no I think it's something that you know we it's big advocate you know when one of the first things I did when I joined Electra many years ago was put together this Academy program, which we've helped evolve and over the years. And I think there's not one person who's joined Electra who hasn't been through the Academy program to, you know, get them ready for client face work. And I think it's, it's, it's been so beneficial for us. And again, the, if you want me to come on and talk about onboarding, I'm more than happy to talk about that Steve as well.
0: Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for your time. Before we close out, I do want to give you a quick opportunity to um, let people know how to find you any, you know, your organizations, where to find those and any upcoming speaking engagements or anything else that you have going on or just any organizations that you like that you want to plug. Uh, so I'll throw it to you first there, Lucas.
2: Okay. Uh, yeah. You can find me. I mean, I'm, I'm very active on LinkedIn, Lucas Marino on LinkedIn. Um, you can email me at Lucas at EastPartnership.org um, come on out to www.eastpartnership.org and check us out. Uh, you can communicate directly with me there if you'd like, if you don't want to exchange emails and that kind of thing, I've got a a way to contact me on the site as well. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. And I I really do appreciate you giving us the opportunity to talk about training because I, I feel like not only is it that we're we're focused on learners and managers who are trying to provide this as a service to their learners, but there's a lot of people out there who are trying to establish their own training, right? Their own training industries. And that's why I started Merino Training to help those people launch their online training businesses. And so if anyone's interested in talking about any of this stuff, I'd love to nerd out on it. Reach out, we'll, we'll, we'll get to know each other.
1: Yeah, and I'll just echo Lucas's comments there on, you know, Absolutely. It's, it's it's a passion of mine. It's been for a long time. So, uh, you know, very active in LinkedIn as well. So Neil Summers on LinkedIn, uh, the Electro Learning page. We do lots of good stuff there as well. So visit either my personal page in LinkedIn or the company page. You can get me on email at neil at electrolearning.com. Uh, and our company website is electrolearning.com as well. So any of those, uh, lots of good content there. We've got a YouTube channel. You can check us out on YouTube. Uh, we're active when it comes to sponsoring um again we used to be a sponsor of this podcast and we um, i'm sure we will be again steve and uh, again we heavily participate in lots of the maximum user groups and sponsorship of those uh, all throughout the year where we were fortunate enough to have an in-person conference in in florida in august last year maximal world which is event Uh, a shout out to the reliability web guys for putting that together and uh, we're looking forward to that in austin this year and there's events coming up in in vegas and sacramento in the next few uh, weeks so hopefully all being well uh, we'll be present at those so we can catch up with some people at them as well
0: I mean, I'll throw those links uh, for your guys' stuff in the the comments or in the podcast description so anybody can check them out there. And thank you guys for always supporting this podcast. I think you two probably like and comment on just about every post we make. So thank you for your support there and really enjoyed chatting with you guys today and uh, can't wait to have you back on again. Yeah, thanks for having us, Steve.
1: Yeah, thanks, Steve. appreciate
2: it.